We started in chapter 4 last week. Now we're going to look at the second half of chapter 4. As you know, the, remember the first half of Ephesians, Paul was telling us this wonderful truth of what God has done in Christ and how everything, everything, the entire universe itself is going to be reoriented based on what Christ has done, based on what God in Christ is doing. Um, and Paul talked about the truths of who we are because of what Christ done. And now that he's shifted gears in chapter 4 and through the rest of the book, he's shifting gears of because of what Christ has done, this is what your life should look like. And so do this and do this and do this is kind of coming at us um, 100 miles a minute. So um, we're going to pick up there again here with Paul talks about the new you. What does the new you look like? In Jesus you are new. What does that look like? That's what we're going to read tonight. Starting in verse 17, chapter 4, read with me. This is God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. I haven't said this in a while, I'm going to say it tonight. I know we've got some new faces, maybe some overnighters tonight. Um, at RUF, we, our hope every Wednesday night at our large group Bible study is that RUF would be a safe place uh, for the convinced and the unconvinced alike. Meaning, it doesn't matter where you fall in regards to this book, um, whether you believe it with your whole heart, whether you hate it with your whole heart, we want this to be a safe place for you as we come together and examine the truth claims of Christianity, of Jesus, and of the Christian life. And that's what we're doing as we've made our way through the book of Ephesians this semester. We've been looking at Ephesians, and Paul tells us the grand picture he's painted is that the point of the Christian story is that God is reuniting a broken and fragmented cosmos in Jesus. Okay? Meaning that everything, 
everything that is and all of us, every single one of us and every part of our being is broken. It's in bondage to death and decay. It's fragmented. It's fractured. We're alienated from God. We're alienated from each other. We're alienated from ourselves even. And what God is doing is God in Jesus is fully revealing his plan to undo it all, to restore it all, to bring it back to the way he was created. Um, And tonight, he talks about the new you, how what Jesus has done produces a new you. You know, there's things um, that will happen that happen in our lives uh, where we know that the rest of our lives are never going to be the same. There's things that happen in our lives where we realize that going forward and looking back, everything else is reoriented right around those things, right? It can be something wonderful, uh, life-giving even, something like finding true love, getting married, uh, having your first child, something wonderful like that, uh, finding the career that you always dreamed of that, is, is, uh, that works out for you. It could be something tragic. It could be something like the death of someone who's foundational uh, to your life. For me, when I think about kind of, um, and my phone is on, let me put that on silent as I get a text. Or a tweet or something. Somebody's tweeting about RUF, actually. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. Him, right there. Um, uh, when I think about something that changed my life and everything going forward was different because of it, I think of when I put a ring on it, uh, specifically on Carrie over there. Um, when we got engaged, um, you know, something happens when you get engaged. Uh, it reorients a lot of different things. Um, you know, before, before I got engaged, before I met Carrie, when, you know, when I'd enter a group, a mixed group, mixed gender group, right, when there's girls in the room or girls wherever I am, right, you'd survey the landscape. Who's there? Who's attractive? Who's available? Right? You're always kind of doing that. Um, and most of y'all are familiar with this. Dating changes when you get to, when you get to college, right? Uh, pretty much, pretty much everyone realizes like dating's not for funsies anymore, right? Um, to quote my favorite Uncle Cy, um, it's not for funsies anymore. And when you're in a mixed group of of people, you're always kind of scoping out the potentials. Um, apparently, in Mercer RUF, there's a history of referring to the pH scale. At RUF, at uh, RUF Summer Conference, meaning potential husband scale. Um, we got some girls that signed up for Summer Conference just because of that. Um, so before, before I met Carrie, before I got engaged, before I got married, when I was, in a, when I was meeting girls or in a group of girls, where did my eyes always go? That's a scary question. Bad way of putting it out. My all, my, <laughs> but there's no other way to say it. My eyes always went to one place. Their finger, right? Their, their ring finger. Yeah. Man, I didn't think that out before I said it. Man. To see if she was available or not, right? To see if there was even any uh, ounce of potential, right? But after getting married, after getting engaged, after getting married, um, that slowly, or actually quickly, I mean, that faded. I, I belonged now to someone, and I had someone that belonged to me. That wasn't something I was searching for anymore. My life was never the same after I put a ring on it, um, as it were. It completely reoriented my life in that regard. What Paul has been building and building on is that the exact same thing happens when you come to Jesus. It completely reorients your life. Completely. Nothing can ever be the same 
after you've met this Jesus, after you've heard about who he really is and what he's really done in the gospel, through the gospel, you'll never be the same. And he draws that out for us in three ways tonight. And I misspelled the first one on your sheet. But three ways he spells this out for us is this. Don't be what you were, be what you are, and be what you're becoming. Okay? So first... Don't be what you were. Don't walk like you used to. Have you noticed that this has come up? He said this in one sense or another over and over again. Do not walk like you used to when you were a Gentile, which just means outside of the people of God, okay? Something Paul's been coming back to. You're not what you were. Paul wants to keep telling you, you are not what you were before Jesus. In chapter 2, you remember he spelled out for us what we were before Jesus. We were dead. But in Jesus, we've been made alive. We were children of wrath. But in Jesus, now we're sons of God, sons and daughters of God. You were far off, but now in Jesus, you've been brought near. You are not what you once were, is what Paul keeps saying. And now he says it, so don't live like you used to. You're not what you used to be. Don't live like you used to. And how did we used to live? One word that the kind of the key word there that he says there in 17 is futility. The way that we used to walk, the way that we used to do things was in futility. Okay, our natural mind, our natural condition apart from Christ was futility. Meaning anything and everything we did got us nowhere. We think it does, but it doesn't. Ultimately, there's no fruit. There's no satisfaction. Why are we doomed to futility apart from Christ? Well, Sinclair Ferguson, a preacher, a Scottish preacher, puts it like this. He says, apart from Jesus, our every effort to solve the jigsaw puzzle of existence is doomed to frustration. I love that. Every effort to solve the jigsaw puzzle of existence is doomed to frustration. Here's the thing. All of us live with some sense that all is not the way it should be. Now, we all live in a sense of that with varying degrees. Some people don't think of it the way that Christians do, and, and there's, there's all different kinds of varying degrees of this. But we all live with some, some sense, whether we recognize it's also in us or not, that things are not completely as they should be. And so we all have different means of going about fixing it. We all live our lives in response to that, trying to fix it, all looking to justify ourselves, justify our existence in some way, okay? Uh, Mark Driscoll, he draws out kind of four fundamental ways that people do this, and I thought they were kind of dead on. He says, you know, some people just assume that they're good enough. They, they assume that they're actually, there's nothing too wrong with them. And so what life is going to involve is just kind of being aware that there's going to be need, need to be moderate life corrections here and there, um, from time to time. Other people take up social causes, right? This is really big in y'all's generation. And they throw themselves at social causes. And they kind of take up this, it's us against the world. Okay, we've got to overcome the evil in the world. Um, and so they, live, they, they center their life about, um, on you know, this kind of collective group. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's wrong to think that that's going to solve everything in the world. Other people say that we have the tools we need to change ourselves. We just need to tap into them. We've got to find them. We've got to find the best technique. We've got to find the best message. Um, and we've got to tap into that um, to, to correct ourselves. Others and that might fall maybe more in our groups, more in our churches maybe, are the rule keepers. Life is all about doing the right thing. And if you just do the right thing, everything will be okay. So four kind of ways that people deal with the sense of not, things not being right. Paul says that all of those are doomed to futility outside of Jesus. 
All of them. All of them will get you nowhere. You can throw yourselves at them endlessly, but they will get you nowhere. And look at what he says the cause is in verse 18. It's due to their hardness of heart. Paul says the reason that life outside of Christ is pointless is not due to a lack of information. It's not due to a lack of know-how. Paul says it's due to something inside of us. There's actually something inside of us that's actively working against us. Our own sin. Our own alienation from our maker. Our own alienation from each other. Our own alienation from ourselves. Our own brokenness actively works against us. And Paul says this is due, this futility is due to the condition of our heart. Uh, the, there was a, I don't know if you call him famous, but a well-known uh, atheist philosopher, Bertrand Russell. He was once asked, you know, if when you die, you do meet God and he asked you, why did you not believe in me? What are you going to tell him? And he said, with, without missing a beat, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Saying there's not enough, there wasn't enough information for me. For a lot of for a lot of people, when we read that Paul says that people are darkened to their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance of them, and it was due to their own hardness. It's offensive to people, right? Some people would say, "I am seeking God. I haven't found what I'm looking for, but I am looking." But you're telling me it's my fault that I can't find it. One question worth asking yourself is, what will it take? What kind of evidence, what kind of information will it take for you to fully commit yourself, for you to fully make the turn that, okay, I get this? What will convince you? What is it that you think will finally change you or enable you to change? Jesus tells a really fascinating parable in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Both of them die. Uh, We're told that angels usher the poor man Lazarus to heaven uh, and the rich man is uh, cast into Hades, right? And Jesus tells the parable that the rich man, the rich man in Hades calls out to father Abraham and asks if Lazarus could come and pour him a drink of water to ease his torment just a little bit. Uh, And when Abraham uh, explains to him that that's even if, even if I wanted to or whatever, it's, that's not possible. This is what the man says. He says to Father Abraham, he says, I beg of you then, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let him hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What, what could be a possible explanation? If they, if they can't, basically he says, if they don't believe the Bible, they're not going to believe a man rising from the dead. What could be a possible explanation to that? The only explanation could be something within them. Paul calls it here, hardness of heart. The reason why people struggle with futility is not because they don't have enough information. The Bible will tell us that all of our intellectual objections are not the matter. The matter is a heart matter. We are fundamentally, naturally, of our own volition, opposed to God. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. He says, intellectual rejection of God is a mode of the human's heart to attempt to keep God at a convenient distance. 
Why would we want to keep God at a convenient distance? All of us. It's because our problems with him are not intellectual. They're personal. Because to let him in means that something personal is going to be turned around for me. Something I don't want to let go. It means I'm going to have to give up control. That's why we like to keep God at a distance. We all want to be in control. And Paul says the net result of that is futility. And in fact, he says there in 19, that it actually, that desire to be in control leads to us being out of control. He says that they've become callous and they have given themselves up to sensuality. Meaning they are controlled by their desires now. They sought to be in control, but now they're um, controlled as a result. How do you explain, I think about this a lot, um, how else do you explain a guy like Tiger Woods, right? That guy had it all. He had, his wife was, is universally recognized as a very beautiful woman, right? He's the, he, was, he was pretty much universally acknowledged as the best golfer that has ever lived. He had millions and millions of dollars in endorsements, and he threw all of it away for a few fleeting escapades with some pretty raunchy women. He'd given himself up. He'd given himself up. He'd given himself up to success and power and control. St. Augustine uh, was a preacher, theologian in the 4th century. Uh, in, his, in his early life, though, he had been, he had been a follower of a, of a cultic group because he was after wisdom and he thought that they offered it. And this is what he said about his time in that group. He said, I came to approve of whatever they said, not because I didn't know any better, but because I wanted it to be true. How true do we find that in our lives? Why do you, why do you think you are so hung up on what people think about you? It's because you think that if you keep telling yourself that people's approval, a certain girl, a certain guy, a certain group of people, their approval of you, their love, their reciprocation of respect to you is the only thing that will make your life worthwhile. And you've given yourself up to it. Why do you think so many of us are hung up on how well we do, how successful we are? Because we keep telling ourselves that success is the only thing that's going to bring meaning to my life. We're all looking for something to justify us, something to save us, something to pick up the pieces for us and make us whole. And Paul is reminding us that our hearts used to grasp at anything before Jesus. But in Jesus, we don't need to do that anymore. How is that? He moves on and he says, be what you are. He says there in verse 20, this is a weird way of saying it, but he says, that's not the way you learned Christ. Isn't that a weird way of putting it? It's not the way you learned Christ. He doesn't say it's not the way you learned Christianity. He doesn't say that's not the way you learned the gospel or the scriptures. He says that's not the way you learned Christ. So becoming a Christian is not about learning about Jesus. It's actually learning Jesus. It meaning it's, it's, it's coming into such a real communion, such a real union with him that he begins to grip everything that you are. That everything about you is, not un, is, is touched by him. How does that happen? We puts it in verse 22 through 24 there. He says that we learned Christ when we learned to put off the old, to be renewed, and to put on the new. Okay, and for some of us that smacks is like, 
church therapy or something. I don't know. Um, kind of a, you know, just be the new you in Jesus. What does that mean? We put off the old. We put on the new. Paul is saying we have become something completely new. Completely different than what we were before Jesus. And then some of you, though, you think to yourself, but sometimes I'm exactly who I thought I used to be. Things aren't much different. Well, there's kind of three things here. First is this. This change, this new you, it's from the inside out. Look at verse 22. He says, the old self belongs to the former life and is corrupt. Meaning we needed or we need nothing short of complete transformation. That is what we need, and we need it from the inside out. This is exactly why Ephesians does not start in verse 17 of chapter 4. There's a reason why there's three and a half chapters before it. We need something from the inside out, okay? And this is also why you can't freak out when you find yourself doing things that you hate. When you find yourself doing the things that you thought you'd turned away from. Yes, we should live to turn away from the things that Paul tells us to turn away from. Uh, But it was a former way of life. It was a former way that we used to be. Uh, You think about this. If you move to somewhere where absolutely no English is spoken ever, no one understands English, and you've got to learn a new language, right? English is still going to pop up in your life from time to time, whether in your head or in your dreams or in your thoughts, is it not? Okay, live there long enough and maybe it'll kind of be pushed out, but never fully, not in this life at least. Analogies only go so far. Second thing is this though, you, were, you are not what you once were. If you are in Jesus, you are not what you once were. Meaning your past is completely redefined. This is so big for some of y'all because your past are creeping over your shoulder every second of every day. It doesn't mean that your past is all of a sudden erased, right? But it means your past is no longer a, an open wound. What do I mean there? All of us have certain things in our lives that we translate and we translate them in different ways. We translate our personal history in different ways. Take, I think, the, I think a good example is a, is a big breakup, right? You, you can maybe one or two ways that you can go about processing that breakup as you look back on your past. One, you could say, you could say, um, well, actually, it was a blessing because that person wasn't good for me anyway. I didn't know it at the time, but it really was a blessing as you look back on it. Or you look back at that breakup and that breakup signifies to you this eternal token of rejection. This eternal token that someone did not want you. Two completely different ways of processing it. But what you get in this new identity is that when you come to Christ, you look back at your personal history and you say, you know, that's not what those things meant. They were not random events, nor were they ultimate judgments on my worth. Okay? On who I am and who I will always be. Actually, they were God at work in my life leading me to the point that I'm at today. Your new identity completely changes how you look at your past. But thirdly, it's this. You have a new cosmic identity. It's not just a name tag. It is, it is huge. So far, he, Paul goes so far to say that it's a new creation. You look there in verse 24. Put on the new self that was created after the likeness of God. 
He puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's not something for you to go and get. It's something that God has already made. You are a new creation. You are new. In Jesus, God has made you new. Who is at the beginning of the first creation? Adam. Who's at the beginning of the new creation? Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 1.18, he says, He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the new Adam. He's the new first man. And here's the thing. He came and did what the first Adam could not do. He lived the life that I should have lived, and he died the death that I deserved. That's it. And so to be in him, it's not just life change. It's not just, um, um, it's not just do this, do that. It's not just changing how I live. It's being a part, a member of a new creation. Something that is totally new. What would that look like? St. Augustine again. St. Augustine tells the story. St. Augustine was a promiscuous man before he um, came to Christ. And he tells the story one time he was walking through town and he passed by one of his mistresses on the road. And he gave a polite nod and kept walking. And she turned around and she yelled after him, St. Augustine, or not, he wasn't a saint at that point, um, Augustine, it is I. And he tells the story that he turned around and he said, yes, but it is not I. Where did he get the freedom, the power to say something like that? Yes, but it is not I. It's not the me that you knew. This is so much bigger, you see, than changing what you do. It's learning Christ. It's putting Him on. It's communing with Him, having union with Him, and living in light of what He has secured for you. It's putting off the old. It's putting on the new because you are new. But how do I get that? Where does that come from? How do I know it if I see it? Paul, we just have to quickly run through these bullet point style. But I, I want to acknowledge each one of them. Paul in 25 through 32, he gives this list, these five markers of identity transformation. And you'll notice that each one has to do with putting away something and putting on something else. Right? Okay, so this isn't, you can't just put off. If you just put off, that's like cutting off the pollution source but doing nothing with the water, right? But you can't just put on. You can't just pour soap in toxic sludge and it be drinkable water. There has to be both. You have to do both. You have to take away and you have to put on to make new, to be new. Let's just run through these real quick. He says, the first one, he says, replace falsehood with truth. The first thing he points to is what comes out of your mouth. I find that fascinating. What does what comes out of your mouth say about you? And this was so big when I did youth ministry, and it's just as big for y'all. Twitter, Facebook, whatever, wherever you're putting words out, that is your mouth. And this is also a big one. I've even had to learn this. When you retweet something, it's the same thing as saying it. Y'all realize that, right? Just thought. What is coming out of your mouth? 
Anger is replaced with control. He doesn't say don't be angry, but he says don't sin in your anger. Sinful anger is anger that controls you. Anger that you cannot put to bed is anger that controls you. Okay? I I don't... This is just an aside. I don't think Paul's necessarily saying don't go to sleep if you're angry. Sometimes you need to sleep on things. He's saying that if there's anger that you cannot put to bed, it's always there. It controls you. There are things to be angry about. We're to be angry about our sin and try to put it away. We're supposed to be angry about injustice. All sorts of things to be angry about, but don't let it control you. He says stealing is replaced by giving. There's so much that we could say about this. And he says, and when he says stealing is replaced by giving, he says, so he says, not only does he say that we would get, that we would start getting righteously, honestly of our own work. He says, but it should lead to our giving. Your possessions and what you give away are the surest measure of your heart. You want to know where your heart is? Where is your money going? And some of you are saying, oh, I don't ever spend money. Want to know where your heart is? Why are you hoarding it? What is your end? I think this applies here. One better maybe. Want to know where your heart is? What's on your resume? And what are you willing to die for to get on it by the time you end college? More than that, what is on your resume or not on your resume that you're willing to give up? If anything, taking and getting Paul says is replaced by giving. Fourth one, he says there's corrupting talk is replaced with blessing talk. Two of these five have to do with our words. Think about that. Luke 6, uh, 45, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that we say should be characterized by building up. Why is it that rehearsal dinners are the only times that we stand up and say good things about our friends? Why don't we do that all the time? Rehearsal dinners are awesome because we stand up and we say these awesome things about people. Why don't we do that all the time? We should. Why can't we say nice and meaningful things to each other without throwing sarcasm in on the back end of it? Guys, especially, I'm talking to you on that one. Why can't we just love each other with our words? The last one here is animosity replaced by kindness. And this one kind of sums all of them up because all five of those have to do with how we deal with one another, how we love one another. And he concludes it by saying, be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving just as Christ uh, forgave you. How can these things be expected of us? How can I be expected to live like this? How can I know that this actually will bear fruit in my life? That if I come to Jesus, that he'll actually start working things like this in my life. It's the, same, it's the way Paul ends it. You want to know how you'll get it? Look to what Jesus has already done. That's it. John chapter 2, Jesus goes into the temple Um, And cleanses it. He throws the money changers out and the people that are there for dishonest gain. And the Pharisees come to him later and they demand a sign. They demand that he prove to them how he can do such things and how he can demand such things of people. And he says, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And John tells us 
as an aside, of course, that Jesus was referring to his body. But more interestingly, Jesus, John throws in there in John chapter 2, at the beginning of his gospel, that after Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered Jesus saying that, and they believed the scriptures. All the way in the beginning of the gospel, John throws in that little aside. The death and resurrection of Jesus were so meaningful that John says that after Jesus raised from the dead, the disciples go back and remember him talking about that early in his ministry. How could the death and resurrection of Jesus be that meaningful to me? Well, Paul sums it up all here in Romans 6. And this is what I'll end with. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united to him, to him with a, in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's the only question I leave with you tonight. Do you believe it? That in his death and resurrection is your death to the old you and your new life now and into and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we long for this to be true of us knowing that all too often all our efforts feel like they're unto futility, that they're going nowhere, that we're going nowhere, would you remind us that we can never be good enough? But Father, that in Jesus, we already are. Father, from the truth of that would we have the power to live as you've called us to live? In Jesus, in his name we pray, amen.